Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I'm so very excited and happy to have you here with me. Um, Like I always say, I never thought it would go on this long. I definitely never thought I would have so many fans from around the world and people listening to me. Um, I thought it would be a couple months. Maybe my parents would listen. I never thought it would be years. Um, As I was going through my demographics, I was super excited to see that I had listeners in the Netherlands because I am a huge fan of Drag Race Holland. Um, I was super excited uh, to see that I had listeners there. Um, I'm just a huge fan, not just of the show, um, but um, of the country in general. I I just love the culture. Um, I love everything about you guys out there. So I'm so, so grateful to have fans from the region. Janie JK over uh, doing her thing on uh, UK versus the world. I'm going to be seeing her when she comes out to my neck of the woods in the tour. So um, I wanted to do something for you guys, which is why we are doing the specific kidnapping um, on this episode. So this is for um, my listeners in the Netherlands. Um, I hope you appreciate it. Um, I was startled to read that in 2010, the United States was ranked sixth in the world for kidnapping for ransom crimes. According to statistics, they are sixth after Colombia, Italy, Lebanon, Peru, and the Philippines. In June 2010, Senator John McCain stated that Phoenix, Arizona was the kidnapping capital of America. They had 370 cases in 2010. Phoenix is ranked second in the world only to Mexico City. The increasing frequency of these types of headline cases caused several people to investigate in kidnapping further to better understand the overall risks of abduction, how to avoid being kidnapped, and what to do if being held captive for a long period of time. One of the things that came from these type of uh, research is um, when traveling to certain parts of the world, you're required to get kidnapping insurance and there was a rise in people who do extractions or in other words, rescuing people from kidnapping. One thing that people have come to learn is that kidnapping is a growing global pandemic, uh, epidemic, excuse me, with no realistic solution. By definition, kidnapping is the taking or transportation of a person against their will usually to hold them in false imprisonment, confinement without any legal authority to do so. This may be done for ransom or in furtherance of a different crime or in connection with child custody disputes. Non-custodial parental abductions of children are by far the number one type of kidnapping occurring across the globe and often do not get included in the most common statistical reporting of abductions. Kidnapping for ransom is certainly a common occurrence in many parts of the world, especially in Latin America, and certain countries are often described as kidnapping capitals. In 2010, Mexico clearly earned the title, but very few abductions were for financial gain. It is estimated that over 90% of the kidnappings in Mexico were due to wars being fought among and between the various drug cartels and the Mexican government. Statistically, nearly all of victims in Mexico were killed. In 2007, the title Kidnapping Capital of the World belonged to Iraq, with possibly 1,500 foreigners kidnapped. Estimates break that number almost even in half between kidnapping for ransom and kidnappings for ideological purposes. In 2004, Mexico held the title, and in 2001, it was Colombia. Funnily enough, I have a friend who, on vacation in Mexico, 
about 10 years ago, so about around 2010, was actually kidnapped, was actually snatched. And they, when they went through his wallet, they saw that his last name was Pachico. And they mistook him for someone who was a Mexican-American and let him go. They only kidnapped him because they thought that he was an American that would be able to give them money, actually pay to be let go, or that his family would pay them. And when they saw his last name, they thought that he was um, a Mexican-American, and that's why they let him go. And they asked him, they said, are you Mexican? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And they were like, oh, okay, we, we don't. We don't kidnap Mexicans. And they actually took him and, and got a beer with him. And he's actually Portuguese. And so that's the story that he has told me. He thinks it's funny. I don't find it funny. But being a Portuguese guy who was mistaken as Mexican-American, that actually saved his life. Kidnappers tend to develop a profile of their likely targets before making an abduction based upon their overall goals which usually falls into one of three categories, financial gain, extremism, or emotional disturbance. If a kidnapper is going to take a hostage for ransom, he will target the victim based upon an outward appearance of wealth or information given to them from someone who knows the victim intimately, such as a household employee, a bank teller, a waitress at their, their favorite restaurant, or someone else that suspects that the victim has a lot of money. Have you ever inadvertently flashed a lot of cash while digging through your wallet or purse to pay for something at the store? If you are a regular, that sort of gossip tends to get a lot of attention from minimum wage workers, and dollar amounts often get blown out of proportion the more times the story of your wealth gets told. The good news is that a hostage for ransom victim tend to survive their ordeal. Avoid carrying large amounts of cash or wearing expensive jewelry. Be discreet about how much money you have and where you keep it. Zealots, extremists, and terrorists tend to target their victims based on such things as nationality, ethnicity, religion, social status, or organizational affiliations. Employees of specific companies or political parties might be targets. Unfortunately, because the primary aim of these type of abductions is to create sensationalism, uh, trying to be visible and make statements, a percentage of the hostages that are killed can often be quite high. Strong emotion and mental defects can also play a large part in overall numbers of kidnappings. The kidnapping of a child by a non-custodial parent or other adult is usually based upon an emotional upheaval created when the kidnapper feels the child's wife, welfare and best interests are at risk, or that the child will be completely gone from their lives. Non-custodial parental kidnappings also occur out of spite or revenge. People take hostages during periods of rage and profound loss. One classic example is that of a man taking an ex-lover hostage because he's too emotionally unable to let go. The feeling of loss festers into the irrational thought that he might be able to convince the victim to reconsider resuming their relationship, if she could just be made to listen. Gender-based kidnappings occur as well. Dis mentally disturbed individuals may have sexual fantasies that often cause them to target people because of their gender. There really is nothing one can do to avoid the attention of a would-be kidnapper who is either an extremist or otherwise mentally unwell. Apply standard personal safety precautions to lessen the chances of becoming a victim. Situational awareness is of the utmost importance. William Holadier, nicknamed Denus for his gigantic nose, 
was born in 1958 in Amsterdam in the neighborhood of Jordan. William Heldier was the son of Wim Heldier, an employee at the Heineken Brewery who lost his job due to alcoholism. As a teenager, he, along with his classmate Corvan Hoot, were part of a gang that worked for landlords, evicting squatters, and that may have been involved in several robberies. Corvan Hoot was later to become his brother-in-law by marrying his sister Sonia. Two years before the actual kidnapping took place, four friends, Corvan Hoot, William Holider, Franz Meyer, and Jan Boladar, decided they wanted to become rich extremely quickly. The best way they could come up with was planning the kidnapping of a wealthy and famous person. During the preparation, it was initially unclear who would be the victim. They had several candidates, including Weiss Decker, the CEO of Philips, Albert Hian, the CEO of Ahold, Anton Dressman, director of Room and Dressman, Alfred Heineken, major shareholder of Heineken. But it was the beer magnet, Freddy Heineken, the wealthiest man in the Netherlands at the time, and his driver, Ab Drodrer, that ended up being kidnapped. They demanded 30 million euros for ransom, which adjusted for current inflation ends up being 60,295,323 million euros. Freddie Heineken and his driver were kidnapped on the 9th of November, 1983 at 1856, or for us Americans, that translates to 656 in the evening in front of Heineken's office at please excuse my pronunciation what they're in Plantenson, Netherlands. The hostages were thrown in a van and helmets shoved on their heads with the face mask taped so they couldn't see. A taxi saw the abduction and followed as the van they were in stopped in an underpass to separate the hostages in separate cars. The gangsters saw him and approached the driver with a semi-automatic weapon and began shooting. The taxi was able to back away unharmed. Heineken and Duderer were imprisoned on Quonset Hut, belonging to the Belladards. Once again, please excuse my pronunciation. Wood Manufacturing Company at a business park in De Heining in Worcesterport, in the western part of Amsterdam Harbor. The preparation required a lot of thought, though, and a lot of time and money. The four friends invested 100,000 Dutch guilders to pay for what they needed. Jan Bullard possessed 140 foot Romney shed in the Western Harbor area of Amsterdam. The hut was prepared in advance by a creation of a double wall on one end with two soundproof cells with a hidden door. This made the 42 meter long hut shorter on the inside by four meters, which went predominantly unnoticed. They built two cells behind a wall with a secret door. From the workshop, which was located in the shed, you could see the cells and nobody noticed the room was now 12 feet shorter than before. During the kidnapping, when Heineken and Duderer were locked in these cells, people walked in and out of the workplace without noticing anything was unusual. When the SWAT team came, they thought they were given a bogus tip and often, several times, came and went without noticing anything was wrong. The first time, after several hours, a policeman was able to find a hidden door, but still had no results. The two hostages were held for 21 days. 
They were given food and access to a chemical toilet. However, Holodier would toy with Heineken whenever possible, turning off breathing vents and playing horrible music. Holodier's sister turned star witness eventually against him. Astrid felt her brother inherited a sadistic trait of their father, who also worked for Heineken. She said her father was obsessed with him in a stalkerish way, so subconsciously this also served as revenge for the abuse her father committed against them. When the preparations were in full swing, Martin Ikramps was added to the team. He had a limited role in the kidnapping. He helped the four friends plan the kidnapping and steal cars that were used during the crime. The money transfer was the most complicated part of the whole kidnapping. They came up with an idea to use a mnemonic tube transport. For those people in the United States, that's the tube system used at the banks when you go um, deposit money when you go through the drive-through. That was a way they could stay at a reasonable distance while receiving the money. However, a test showed that this entailed a lot of risk and it was just way too difficult to achieve. Another option was to get the money thrown into the water by negotiators so the kidnappers could collect it using the diving equipment. The problem with this method was the weight of the money. Millions of paper money would be hard to handle underwater. The weight of the money was a huge problem for the kidnappers. They didn't want the demand bills of a thousand Dutch guilders to decrease the chances of getting caught afterwards. The bags with bills of smaller values would weigh at least a hundred pounds total. The kidnappers wanted the police to think that they were German. They bought almost all the materials in Germany, such as manufactured typewriters, A4 paper with German watermarks, and all that was found in the cells came from the country of Germany. The kidnappers and police communicated by letters, coded newspaper ads, or they recorded Heineken and Deuterer on tapes, which they used to give instructions by phone. The kidnappers demanded a ransom of 200,000 Dutch, German, French, and U.S. banknotes with a total value of 300 million Dutch guilders, or 22 million U.S. dollars. The first attempt at a ransom payment failed because it was not able to make the drop without the public or the press noticing. The second attempt, on November 28th, the kidnappers demanded that the driver of the car with the ransom was alone and not followed. The driver was led to a chain, through a chain of instructions. The kidnappers had buried these in plastic cups earlier. On the way, the driver was instructed to transfer with the ransom to another car. Eventually, at the top of an overpass, the agent had to stop. Through a radio, he was instructed to slide the money pads down through a drainage channel. The kidnappers stood below the overpass and loaded the ransom into a Mercedes Onmag and drove away. Earlier in the woods, near Zeist, they had buried several barrels in the ground. This is where they hid the money. When the second ransom note was typed, they Xeroxed the crew of four realized one of them left their handprints on the letter. So they had to act fast. The drop was made and they called in an anonymous tip on themselves after departing so the hostages could be found. According to the police, three of the five kidnappers were named in the tip. The police never revealed any other information. On the night of the ransom drop, the night vision camera was attached to a police helicopter and the helicopter followed the car that was sent to drop off the ransom. They followed it via a viaduct without on or off ramps. The bags of money were dropped through this drainage gutter to the kidnapper's pickup point. Up until this point, everything was fine. 
The gyroscope with which the camera was attached to the helicopter with came loose, however, and it was no longer controllable, according to the minister. The camera stared out at the night, and that's all that we could see, while the kidnappers took off with the ransom unchecked. You could hear the helicopter crew squaring at the camera, and it was rather audible on the recordings. Jan Balliadar and Martin Eerkamps were arrested soon after the invasion of the shed. The other three kidnappers managed to escape. Franz Meyer spent several weeks in Amsterdam, but turned himself in on December 28th. Wilhelm Holledier and Cor van Hout fled to Paris. Martin Eerkamps was sentenced to eight years in prison in October of 1984. Jan Balliadar was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Van Hout and Halliadier were sentenced to 11 years in prison eventually in February of 1987. Because the earlier extradition was withdrawn by France, they could not be brought to trial for the indictment written over the death threats. This resulted in a one-year prison sent one-year less prison sentence than Balladier. They stayed in an apartment several months but were finally arrested by French police in February 29th of 1984. Cor Van Hute was in a relationship with William's sister Sonia, who was pregnant with his child. They were placed in French prisons and also under house arrest in various French hotels until October of 1986, when almost two years after the abduction, they were extradited to the Netherlands. Franz Meyer was given a psychiatric evaluation. He escaped from the mental hospital on January 1st of 1985. Without his presence, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. After the kidnapping, what he did with Cor Van Hout was hide in France. They were arrested thanks to his involvement with Sonia, Haladier's sister. The police tracked her phone and that was how they were able to find them. According to Astrid, Willem's other sister, Haladier and Cor Van Hout took most of the ransom money and gave it to criminal associates throughout the Netherlands to start investing. So that way, when they came out of prison some years later, they were rather rich and had, at that point, become extremely well-known and respected among the criminal underworld of Amsterdam. Two of the fellows stayed incredibly close after prison since they were practically family and had kids together. But after a few years, somebody tried to shoot Cor Van Hout. Not once, but several times, until one day he was killed by two men on a motorcycle in front of a Chinese restaurant in Amsterdam. Willem's sisters, Astrid and Sonia, always believed that Cor was not shot by some random gangsters, but people had blackmailed him for money, and it was actually organized by Willem himself. They believed that he was jealous and wanted more of the ransom money, and therefore eliminated him. Initially, according to Dutch news, Willem was in business relationship with a real estate businessman, Willem Andustra. Astrid stated in her book and later on in her court testimony that they were involved in a money laundering scheme. Andustra, who was called the banker of the underworld, was also shot dead near his office in 2004. Practically, according to a Dutch publication, Andustra was investing in real estate all the money he got from his criminals. Some of the investments were taking a lot of time to start actually making back the money that he was supposed to be laundering, and some of the gangsters that invested didn't want to wait, and therefore they killed him. Willem maintained the contact with his sisters and nephews, whose father he may have actually killed by ordering a hit. Regarding his sister's testimony, 
but it took them a long time and many years to actually turn on him. Probably they only maintained contact with him because it gave him the ability to collect evidence, evidence that they eventually used against him in court. Astrid had worked as a lawyer and she was constantly giving him legal advice, but at the same time, she was recording all of the conversations and it was those recorded conversations that she would use as evidence against him. In 2013, Astrid decided to testify against her brother for the Dutch Justice Department. They called it a mega trial in a courtroom called Bunker in Ostorp, which is part of Amsterdam, where the key witness against William Holadier was, you guessed it, Astrid. During the trial, she was under police protection because she believed that he wanted to kill her. Some Dutch publications said that Astrid almost didn't testify because she felt she didn't have enough police protection and that Wilhelm had become a celebrity within the country, especially after this, and that he even had his own column in a newspaper where people were bragging that they had added him on Facebook. After his release from prison, Holladier appeared on television in the show College Tour in 2012. He also was mentioned in a song by a Dutch rapper, Lange Franz, and recorded a song with him. Willem is back. In September 2012, various politicians condemned his appearances because Holladier should not be a cult hero. They were also kind of afraid of him and the amount of publicity he was getting. From September 2012 until March 7th, 2013, he wrote this weekly column that I uh, mentioned before for the Dutch news magazine, Noe Revue. Halidaire actually has a lot of admirers in the Netherlands, but he was eventually arrested again in May of 2013 and charged for extortion. Um, a lot of times in the United States, it's referred to as a protection racket where you're causing your basically a shakedown where you ask people to pay you in exchange for you not committing crimes against them. On the 12th of June 2013, he was released from prison because of lack of evidence, but he continues to remain a suspect. He ended up back in jail in May 2015 thanks to his sister who secretly recorded him again while visiting him in prison. He himself absolutely could not believe that his sister still had a problem for him, but this time they got an ex-girlfriend in on it, Sandra Dan Hortak. Uh, Sonia um, basically stated that she told her story to the newspaper The Telegraph to emphasize that we did not say anything about anyone but Wilhelm. He made our lives hell, with which we felt that there was no escape possible. He not only threatened to murder us, but also all of our children. To show how insane he has become, he thought it would be a favor if I could choose which of my two children would be shot first. Sandra added that he also regularly threatened to kill not just her son, but her nephews. He regards the growing children of people he had assassinated as potential future threats. He was afraid that they would later take revenge for the crimes he had committed. So that is the strange, bizarre <laughs> tale of the kidnapping of the Heineken heir um, and the long series of 
crimes it led to. I'm just fascinated by the fact that his sister spent all these years gathering evidence against him while acting kind of as his lawyer and then turned on him, which then led to him having this bizarre kind of cult status in the Netherlands. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, but that is the story of, of the Heineken kidnapping. So next week, we are going to look at the Long Island police chief, the sex ring he was running, and the dead prostitute found up the street from his house. Maybe he's a corrupt cop. Maybe he just likes a good time. Who knows? But in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>